Hello, my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about a legend in the cinema field. Yes, we're talking about Godfrey Ho. A.K.A. Tim Ashby, Alton Chung, Chester Yang, Godfrey Hall, Christ Hanna, uh, perhaps most aptly, Ed Wu. He has on IMDb, I counted... 86 pseudonyms. That's insane. That's right. Godfrey Ho is a guy that if you watched a ninja film that was in the 80s or 90s and was very confusing and you were not sure what was going on and it felt like a bunch of movies were edited together, number one, you were right. Number two, it was probably directed by Godfrey Ho. Godfrey Ho has directed at least 118 films. Nobody knows the exact number for sure. Some of his films include... Ninja Champion, Ninja Dragon, Ninja Hunt, Ninja Kill, Operation Golden Dragon, Ninja Project Daredevils, Ninja Demons Massacre, Ninja in Action, Ninja Terminator, Robo Vampire. I eyeballed his IMDb list, and he had about 50-ish films that have ninja in the title. I'd like to share with you a piece of dialogue from his masterpiece, U.S. Catman Lethal Track. I'm very sorry, Mr. Kitty Cat. The plan has already been set in motion. Watch your lips, shithead, or I'll put you over my knee and spank your bottom for you. I'm gonna burn you alive. I always liked hot pussy. Now, if people are rushing out to go watch U.S. Catman, don't do it. Go to YouTube and watch a 30-minute, 25-minute edit of the movie. Why is that? Why is the good part only 25 minutes, Will? You, you may be wondering, how can a man be as prolific as Godfrey Ho? Well, it's because he only directed some parts of his movies. And directed is a shaky word for some of them. He and his producer, Joseph Lai, the founder of International Finance Development Films and Arts Limited, also known as IFD, bought the rights to a bunch of Korean, Thai, Japanese, Chinese movies, many of them unreleased, many of them unfinished, all of them bad, uh, because they got them for cheap, and they used these unreleased films as the raw material to build their own movies. Oftentimes their movies would have maybe an hour of footage that they recycled and then maybe 30 or 20 minutes of footage they shot themselves. Oftentimes the same footage from movie to movie to movie. But how would they do it? How would they make movie after movie that are made up of a bunch of different sources? Well, they weren't doing it very well. (laughs) (laughs) And... They would have a character in one movie pick up a phone and talk and then cut to new footage of someone on the phone and then they would communicate. This would happen maybe once, sometimes twice, and that was the only link the scenes would have. And one of the most notorious things about these movies were uh, the washed up actor Richard Harrison came to Hong Kong to act in, you know, a few of them. And he found his footage in 20 or 25 of them. How was Godfrey Ho able to do this? By shooting without sound and by dubbing all the soundtrack later so that, you know, poof, you've got a new plot. And also Richard Harrison in that new footage that he shot was dressed as a ninja. And how do you shoot new footage with someone that's a ninja? You just lift the mask up a little bit. Boom, you have a new actor and you can do a whole new bunch of stuff. This is another way that you can create a Frankenstein monster out of somebody else's movie and your new movie. Let's say it's a movie that's a love triangle drama about two men and one woman who are wrapped up in a forgery business. It has no action. It has no uh, suspense. It has has nothing. How do you spice it up? Yeah, how do you spice it up? How do you add a little bit of... Japanese flavor. Well, let's just say that 
it turns out the whole time these three people were actually ninjas. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. And that's how you've combined it with your new ninja movie by suddenly having three people who have ninja masks over their faces and you've been told that love triangle you spent the whole movie with, that's them. And you're being very generous with the linking of plots here because that is probably a uh, very high-level example of Godfrey Ho linking. Most of the time... They're just completely unrelated. And you're watching the movie going, what does this awful, like, Thai war film have to do with Catman going to fight bad guys? Mm. But let's talk about Godfrey Ho a little bit. I want to talk about his the history of his life as little as we have about it. Fact of the matter is, all of this is speculative. Mm-hmm. Because everybody involved with IFD and the other companies that Godfrey Ho would go on to work for... They lie about everything if they're interviewed. They're legitimate businessmen. That's right. (laughs) As you noticed on the IFD website, which looks like it was made in 1996. IFD is still in business, technically. (laughs) And at the bottom it says, do not steal our intellectual property, which made me laugh and laugh and laugh. (laughs) So Godfrey Ho was born in 1948, and he worked as an assistant on a bunch of Shaw Brothers films, including Marco Polo, which happened to have Richard Harrison in the cast, which is how they met. Shaw Brothers, of course, the big studio in Hong Kong in the early 70s. Uh, Godfrey Ho apprenticed under the great filmmaker Chang Che. Mm-hmm. There is Who one... directed Marco Polo. That's right. And there's one particular film, The Blood Brothers, in which Godfrey Ho was the first AD. The second AD? John Woo. Jo- so, you know, like ships passing in the night. Yeah, exactly. Now, Godfrey Ho decided to become a filmmaker himself. He mm. wanted to branch out. but He the... wanted to make art. But there was no way that he could compete with, you know, Shaw Brothers or uh, Golden Harvest or those other studios. But what he realized was there was an international market for Hong Kong films, an undiscriminating international market. So what's interesting about Godfrey Ho is that he did not make his movies for the Chinese market. Mm -hmm. He made them for the international market because he felt that he could fool these people with these films that he was cobbling together. But he wouldn't be able to do that without Joseph Lai and sometimes said to be Joseph Lai's wife, Betty Chan. Uh, As me and Will talked about before we started recording, we weren't sure if it was Godfrey Ho's wife or if she was Godfrey Ho herself or himself. All this stuff is up in the air. There is also a mysterious man by the name of Thomas Tang. Mm -hmm. Joseph Lai and Thomas Tang are technically the co-founders of IFD. Thomas Tang died mysteriously in a fire in the 90s. After Godfrey Ho sold him the rights to IFD, which was being investigated for some unlawful business practices. So uh, IFD, their offices did burn down. Uh, 40 people died. Including Thomas Tang. Yeah, including the mysterious Thomas Tang, including the master prince to many of their films, actually. You know... So the, you know, the police could investigate this Thomas Tang fellow. But, you know, a few years later, films started to appear directed by Thomas Tang. Who knows what caused the fire? Thomas Tang. Yeah, who knows? But people did die. (laughs) Did they? That's what I read. Who knows? (laughs) We don't know anything. The mystery. This is like a um, David Lynchian world, (laughs) the universe of Godfrey Ho and how these films came to be. So Godfrey Ho started his directorial career making a lot of uh, low-budget kung fu movies. His first movie was called The Blazing Ninja. He made a lot of films with uh, Dragon Lee, Mm -hmm. uh, who was a uh, South 
South Korean martial artist, you know, a Bruce Lee clone. A low-rent Bruce Lee clone. He was in the movie The Clones of Bruce Lee, in fact. That's right. <laughs> uh, but uh, a lot of movies like uh, The Dragon, The Hero, Dragon Lee versus The Five Brothers, I'm forgetting the rest of the titles, they're all interchangeable. Some of them are fun, you know. Yeah, but what Godfrey Ho is most famous for, again, are ninjas. So mm-hmm. me and Will watched the monument in the filmography of Godfrey Ho, the one that people talk about the most, and that's Ninja Terminator. Why is this one picked out of every one of them? I would say that it's probably because its distribution on VHS was the biggest, or maybe it played a lot on television. I think there, in addition to that, there are two reasons. One, the title, Mm -hmm. Ninja Terminator. Ah, But there's so many great titles of like Ninja Commando Squad, Ninja, etc. Yeah, okay, but the other reason is... This is actually one of the few Godfrey Ho movies that I think is entertaining all the way through. Mm -hmm. So the movie that this movie has been, you know, jerry-rigged around is actually kind of entertaining. Yeah, it's a uh, South Korean picture called The Uninvited Guest of the Star Fairy, which came out in 1984-1986. It was actually a film that was made by a director who, according to IMDb, has like 80 credits. Mm. A lot of the footage stolen by Godfrey Ho, sorry, repurposed by Godfrey <laughs> Ho and edited into his own film. And we should point out that like, Godfrey Ho is a director who has no qualms about, like, dropping some Star Wars or some Indiana Jones or some Superman music all over his films. Uninvited Guest uh, also uh, stars Huang Jang Lee, mm. who some of you may know as the villain in Drunken Master. A super kicker. Yeah, and uh, he really does kick. So there are a lot of pretty solid uh, fight scenes in this movie. Completely disconnected from any kind of narrative sense. So the plot of Ninja Terminator, which I had a hard time following, I have to admit, even though it's quite simple. <laughs> I had no idea what was going on. Uh, according to IMDb, the plot is that three ninja masters are trying to find the golden ninja warrior, I think it's called. It's yeah, a, it's a th- the golden ninja warrior. It's a statue that when they connect the three parts of the statue, and these three parts have been dispersed, but when they connect them, it, it gives the bearer untold powers. And so this is a movie... Because we have no idea what's going on in the plot, the individual scenes have to stand out. And boy, do they do. Richard Harrison, an actor, unfortunately way past his prime, wearing mascara under his eyes. Because I guess it looks more ninja-like. I guess. Picking up the phone to give a little call with Garfield, I guess? Because his phone is one of those old Garfield phones. Yes, this is the kind of filmmaker we're talking about here. Richard Harrison is talking into a Garfield phone (laughs) and no comment is made on it. And his wife in one sequence, which was probably the highlight of the film for me, walks in the room and goes, I'm making your favorite. And he's like, oh, you're making crab? And she replies with, I'm making drunken crab. (laughs) And then suddenly she screams. He looks in and all the crabs are on the ground and she's just screaming. So Richard Harrison picks up like a dart, throws it. You see a crab get stabbed on camera with a dart. The scene ends, never mentioned again. There's another iconic scene where a little toy robot, <laughs> like, and I'm talking like maybe a foot tall toy <laughs> yeah. robot, bursts into Richard Harrison's apartment and starts like sending him a threatening message. <laughs> that scene and the Garfield phone scene are probably the two most iconic moments in the uh, Godfrey Ho filmography. 
Richard Harrison looks very unhappy to be here. Yes. Uh, Richard Harrison... Almost as if he realized he was going to be stretched over 20 films. Richard Harrison's biggest contribution to filmmaking was that he turned down the part of the man with no name in Sergio Leone's Westerns. Probably lived to regret it for the rest of his life. Uh, I know we're big fans of Richard Harrison in the film Challenge of the Tiger with Bruce Lett. Classic Bruce Lett picture where Richard Harrison is a ladies man who likes to play naked tennis. And he looks drunk all the way through. In this movie, he looks merely unhappy. How drunk would he have to get, do you think, for him to start saying, I could have been a contender? (laughs) Probably two beers, I would assume. I don't think the Sergio Leone movies would have been quite as big with uh, Richard Harrison. No, there's a bunch of actors who are in Sergio Leone-like roles that, like, didn't blow up to anything, but I think Clint Eastwood and that director made something special. Just like Richard Harrison and Godfrey Ho made something special. (laughs) And what's weird about these movies is that Godfrey Ho obviously lives in a very uh, narrow world. One where Richard Harrison is a box office draw. Yes. Because it might as well be any white guy. Why repurpose this footage? Because people don't see his name and go, ooh, Richard Harrison, I'm a fan of his. Well, this is something that Godfrey Ho and Joseph Lai eventually learned uh, because what they found was that I mean, the reason they cast Richard Harrison in the first place was that international market wanted to see white people. Mm -hmm. And eventually they realized it can be just any white person. So they would put up ads in the Chungking Mansions, which is a district in Hong Kong where a lot of low rent B&B type places would be. And they say, wanted Caucasian actors, no experience necessary. I thought you were going to say Caucasian assholes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, looking at the actors in Godfrey Ho films, They are not thespians, if you will. I mean, they are dubbed, but they also look like the everyman pulled off off the street. Like uh, the star of Catman, if you will. Yeah, uh, U.S. Catman. uh, That's so Is there like, there's a Hong Kong Catman? Because there isn't. U.S. Catman Lethal Track, which is sometimes known as just Catman in the Lethal Track. Mm -hmm. This movie stars a fellow by the name of Jonathan Isgar, who actually made something of a career of being a white guy in Hong Kong movies in the 90s. He's in uh, Operation Condor. Once Upon a Time in China. That's right. Uh, He's not a good actor. He's a doughy white guy. Mm -hmm. But when he's scratched by a radioactive cat, he gains, I'm not sure what powers, he can light cigarettes with his mind? It's unspecified what powers (laughs) he has, but he has powers. This movie was kind of an attempt to rip off Tim Burton's Batman. And in fact, there's a scene where like, Jonathan Isgar like puts his two hands together to deflect bullets like Michael Keaton does. Uh, but his costume isn't so great. He's really just wearing a black tracksuit or maybe it's just a black coat. And he's got some like shitty goggles on. Which he can also reach in, pull the Catman logo off and use as a throwing star. Yeah. And he does this amazing face whenever he's posing. He'll like cross his arms. And he'll just put on like this gigantic frown. Like a pouty baby who doesn't get candy. He's got a sidekick who is in the CIA. I think, but his sidekick doesn't have a costume. No. And his sidekick dies in the uh, closing moments of the film, just like any kid's picture. Or by that, I mean any Godfrey Ho kid's picture, which are all rated R and filled with swears. Oh, yeah. Catman and his sidekick are chasing after Father Cheever, I believe is his name. Yeah, who is a supernatural priest. Yes. Now, about an hour of the movie is this Thai, like, prisoner of war film, which is very violent, very unpleasant, and literally no connection whatsoever to the No Catman martial plot. arts, no nothing. I can't remember. My attention was drifting through a lot of this, mm-hmm. but I 
I could not even spot a single line of dialogue that connected these two threads. So, like, the Catman character is introduced in the first three minutes, and then it takes 15 minutes for him to come back. Mm -hmm. Like, that's some lazy-ass filmmaking. So this movie's got 25, I think, top-notch minutes. Which you can find on YouTube. Hilarious stuff. Which the people dubbing had to be making it a joke. Yeah. Because, like, that line you read off the top of this episode... Like, that is just an example of the great stuff you see in this. At one point, Catman goes, I feel so strong! And it's so funny. I think Godfrey Ho, as much as I uh, enjoy his body of work, I think he may be the worst filmmaker we've ever devoted an episode to. Well, there is imagination there. And, like, even if you look at Ninja Terminator, some of that ninja stuff, it's kind of fun. Oh, yeah. There's a scene where Ninja throws a throwing star at Richard Harrison and he like catches it on the blade and like spins. Mm -hmm. Like though there are some like basic meat and potatoes Hong Kong action beats. Some of his compositions are surprisingly (laughs) competent. But I think he has such a particular worldview because he was obviously obsessed with ninjas. Like that is insane to me that he made so many ninja films over such a long period of time. But I mean, his his worldview is, is simply commercial. It is, but it's also very askew. Like, he doesn't understand, <laughs> yeah. like, what makes a movie and what people want. Yeah. Like, they th- he thinks they want Ninja Harrison. Like, Catman is him just going, like, what sounds like Batman, Mm -hmm. I guess Catman, and then giving the guy no Catman-like superpowers. But also, like... In, in the footage that he shoots, he does give people what they want. Like, yeah. the footage he shoots is very fast-paced. It's got a lot of, like, acrobatics and dumb, dumb fun bullshit. And the thing about that is, like, that stuff is hard. Like, I think yeah. if, like, Godfrey Ho just wanted to mail it in, he could have done a hundred different easier things than what he's doing. But also, you know, an hour of his movies are boring and bad. Not all of them. Like you said, uh, Ninja Terminator, the fight scenes are really fun, the parts that are not related to it. So this is where he comes across as, I think, very cynical. Yes. Well, he's a very cynical filmmaker. Yeah. When he's interviewed, he will deny that he even edited movies together. And then when the interviewer is like, what are you talking about? Like, we have proof. He goes, oh, well, okay. So maybe I did edit films together, but I shot both films, which is, again, a blatant lie. (laughs) Sometimes you'll hear people talk about godfrey ho and they'll kind of like jokily talk about oh he's so radical he's such an experimental filmmaker no he's just like like, he's not radical to any good end (laughs) yeah he's just exploitative he wants to make money yeah like i don't know maybe he had a citizen kane in him and he's just raising the funds to finally be able to make that picture because as the 90s came along godfrey ho actually started directing all the feature films yeah he did a girls with guns film called lethal panther and he also did a picture in america where he ended up for a few years because he realized that's where the market is well his last film uh which was released in 2000 called manhattan chase was set in new york and it starred cynthia rothrock and me and you also watch probably godfrey ho's most famous picture i think so and that's undefeatable and you've probably seen a clip from it already the final fight scene of undefeatable was an early kind of viral hit on youtube as the worst fight scene ever filmed it's the one where the two guys one of them that has a curly mullet both rip their shirts off before they go in kung fu fight and they have like big muscly abs and they're always flexing and they do like absurd slow-mo punches at each other and they're always like yelling really loud during Mm -hmm. the fight and it has this 
you know, obnoxious synth and saxophone score that plays over it. And that, by the way, plays over the whole movie. <laughs> and uh, at the end, the killer gets his eye um, pierced by a hook that then raises in the air with Cynthia Rothrock and her, I don't know who he is, uh, sidekick, get to go, I'll be seeing you and I'll keep my eye on you and other eye puns like that. I think I saw this clip maybe for the first time 10 years ago. Yeah, and, and, like and, on Real Player and like blocky video. Yeah, and I would watch it and I would wonder like, why hasn't this movie become better known? Why isn't this The Room? And now I know why. Sexual assault. It's a very problematic film. The plot is that there's this killer who... A, has mommy issues, and B, his girlfriend, or maybe it's his wife, who he rapes, yes. I'm sorry to say. In one long, unbroken scene, like it's irreversible or something Awful. like that. But she walks out on him, and, you know, the combination of these two uh, problematic relationships with women uh, lead to him going on this killing spree of women, and he tricks himself into thinking that all these women are his uh, departed wife. Yeah, if he sees anybody in a flower print dress, he goes, "Ah, ah, why did you leave me? You have to come with me. And then he gouges out their eyes after sexually assaulting them. So there's a bit of a cognitive dissonance here between like how ridiculous the movie is and how funny and absurd the style is. Because it's really like that 80s action style, but really overheated there's a juxtaposition between that and how unpleasant the subject matter is but you do get Cynthia Rothrock uh doing some great kung fu kicks and punches if you don't know who Cynthia Rothrock is I feel like we've probably mentioned her before Mm -hmm. she started movies like uh Yes Madame she was in Shanghai Express the Sammo Hung film and she had an American vehicle by Robert Klaus, who did Enter the Dragon, called China O'Brien. And she never really, like, became the star... That she should have been. Yeah, I mean, she's not that good an actor, but martial artists don't need to be, right? Mm. And she is very fun to watch on screen. Uh, She's very not tall, (laughs) which makes it really fun when she fights, like, big dudes and stuff like that, because she can move. She won a bunch of medals in kind of martial arts forms. The thing about Hong Kong action movies of the 90s, even one as bad as this, as low level as this, you're going to get some very good fight scenes. Yeah. And you're going to get some really amazing stunts. There's one stunt in this movie in particular. (laughs) That me and Will both mentioned to each other because we could not believe how crazy it was. Somebody gets kicked out of the second floor of a parking garage, like lands on their back on a car and then falls off the car. Onto cement. And it's just like... A snuff film, basically. (laughs) Yeah, but that's what we go to Hong Kong action (laughs) cinema to see is like this crazy, painful stuff that really only me and you and other fans like that will notice. Because like someone being kicked and hitting a post and falling, like most people that watch that, like they don't register that that person's back. Like they probably had no protection on it. God bless this stuntman for, you know, just doing something that, you know, may have concussed them, frankly. That's right. In a Godfrey Ho movie in the 90s. It was important for them. Like even a fight scene at one point of like Cynthia Rothrock fighting Another cat man with claws <laughs> on a bunch of barrels. Like, that's the gag. Like, that's really dangerous. You could have done something much easier than that. But nope, you're going to find that in a Godfrey Ho picture, which I think is what makes him important. This mixture of, like, these crazy stunts with this slapdash way of putting it together. I want to ask you about one more Godfrey Ho movie that you watched this week. Mm. I watched about 
uh, 30 minutes of it right after I woke up in the in the morning once. I felt like I was still half in a dream world while I was watching it, and it felt very hallucinatory, and I thought, oh, I, I'm not getting any of this. I, <laughs> maybe I have to start it again some other day, uh, but I never did. And it's Thunder of Gigantic Serpent. Yes. This is the one that I wanted to watch because it was a giant monster movie, and I'm like, <laughs> Godfrey Ho doing this! It's actually taken from a Taiwanese uh, monster picture called, I believe, like, King Snake. And it's the story of a young girl and her snake that takes some chemical poison and grows giant and then kills seemingly all of Taiwan. (laughs) And that stuff is really fun, but it's also, there's like a dissonance to it because the snake is killing all these people. And you're (laughs) like, whoa, man, this is really rough. And then it's intercut with... Again, completely unrelated footage of, there's no ninjas, but just commando guys fighting and stuff like that. I think the star of this one is a guy called Pierre Kirby, uh, who, you know, was just some random white guy actor who starred in a bunch of Godfrey O's movies. There's another actor, uh, a black actor whose name escapes me, but he was in something like Black Ninja or something. He Mm -hmm. was just a guy that kind of paid his way into being a Godfrey Ho movie star. And I mean, like... If you want a monster movie and you want that practical, like, cheap-looking stuff, Thunder, the Thunder Snake mm-hmm. is perfect. Like, go and watch that one because it just delivers. Like, you get a bunch of that monster action. But be ready for 45 minutes of nothing. Just the footage from the original movie that he's copying and he can't figure out a story to tell. They're just hanging around going, wait, I haven't seen the little girl or even the ninjas. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the problem with Godfrey Ho is that he wasn't good at doing what he was doing. No. He just kind of slapped it together whichever way that he could. Years ago, I had this idea for a blog I was going to write called Children of a Lesser Godfrey. Uh, <laughs> really, I just liked that title and I and I wanted to build something around it where I would watch all the Godfrey Ho movies and write about them as if they were all taking place in the same universe and, and talk about how because if you watch enough of these movies you'll see the same sets the same posters in the background the same Garfield phone <laughs> yeah. the same this that 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 and, and like it would become like this almost like Lynchian uh, bizarro you world you should almost write it from the perspective of like Godfrey Ho shooting these movies <laughs> and like what's going on and the actors what are they thinking when they're in front of the cameras being directed by him or by whoever it was maybe Godfrey Ho doesn't really exist but after writing two or three unpublished uh articles <laughs> no, no I, more <laughs> i thought this is a waste of time yeah what am i trying to prove there's here? actually like hundreds of godfrey ho fan sites because mm-hmm. like the volume of content that he delivered and the craziness of it is enough to get people into it mm-hmm. but it's also numbing because it's the yeah. same thing over and over and over again and yet there are still so many like <laughs> odd and interesting detours in his career you know i mean like he was a guy that uh while he did stick in the ninja thing he followed fads like in 1994 where he came back to hong kong after his u.s sojourn and made a ripoff of men behind the sun right i want to see that one (laughs) no don't watch that whoever's listening to this because will will explain to you what men behind the sun is men behind the sun is a really gruesome and ugly Hong Kong exploitation movie about Japanese war atrocities. Yep. And so the idea of Godfrey Ho remaking it, that's real fascinating to me. Yeah. Because uh, he'll be shameless. You yeah. Know. He'll be like Jess Franco. Yeah. But I think the thing with Godfrey Ho is there isn't that Jess Franco-ness like personality through every film. Jess Franco's like obsessions appear in his film. Jess Franco had to make movies, it feels like. Yeah. While Godfrey Ho was making movies 
to make money. Maybe, Godfrey Ho, if you dug deep enough, you'd find that Jess Franco beating heart. I think you want to think it's there. Yeah. Because it's it's sad to think of somebody who devoted so much of his life to making movies and so much energy who was simply a cynical hack. But to what end? Like, <laughs> why would he make this many? Like... His filmography is one of an obsessive. Why would you spend your life doing anything? Because you need money. I guess, yeah. But, you know, Godfrey Ho, he's okay now. Because he's currently teaching at the Hong Kong Film Academy. One of the most prestigious (laughs) film academies in Hong Kong. And I'm not even joking. Like, he teaches classes every day. Uh, A widely circulated quote from an interview with him from about 10 years ago. He said, I used to be a movie maker. Now I am teaching people to make movies. It really makes me glad when my students are happily showing me their works. Only if you've been through the whole process can you understand how satisfying and delightful it is. And the thing about Godfrey Ho is that he's a brick wall. He cannot answer any questions about his movies. He will just lie. You won't get anything straight of how all this stuff came to be. Probably because the guy that's Godfrey Ho now, just an actor. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he died in that IFD fire. Yeah, maybe Thomas Tang was the true Godfrey Ho. So, Godfrey Ho. Watch Ninja Terminator, have some fun. Yeah, watch Undefeatable, don't watch it with your friends. Yeah. Oh, and I don't want to forget to say that Undefeatable, all directed by Godfrey Ho. He couldn't help himself from going to shoot another 30 minutes with Robin Shu and Cynthia Rostrock and releasing it under the title Bloody Mary Killer. He repurposed his own movie yeah. and Godfrey Ho'd it. And yeah, shot new footage. <laughs> and the new footage is even grosser than the stuff that's in the U.S. version. Oh man, I gotta check that out. (laughs) All right, so, letters. As per usual, you can send us emails at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to go and rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, thanks. Uh, We've said it a few episodes ago, so go and do it. Even though that, like, I don't even think it's iTunes anymore. It's like Apple something. Oh, okay. Yeah, so... That'll uh, take some getting adjusted to. So this letter is from William Pond. He goes... Hi, guys. I really enjoyed the Spotlight on 1939 podcast. Gone with the Wind is one of those films I greatly admire due to its many technical and narrative merits. Yet after seeing Once, I have never been keen on revisiting. A bit like Irreversible. Gone with the Wind, Irreversible. Great double bill. I was particularly interested to hear your chat on The Wizard of Oz. Here in the UK, the bank Halifax are currently running an ad campaign where their staff are digitally inserted into clips from the film and interact with Dorothy and the gang. The TV ads are being regularly played over here and the posters are plastered all over Waterloo Station, which I go through every day for work. Frankly, it makes me very angry that a great piece of culturally significant art is being used to sell mortgages. How do you guys feel about this? I fear that once they have got it to work once, it will become a common feature of advertising campaigns. I've included a link to the advert below from YouTube, which I hope you can play in Canada. Cheers, Will. Well, the thing about, like, repurposing dead stars from famous movies and using them in ad campaigns has existed since, like, the 70s. Well, there's that really famous case in the 90s where there's that, you know, that... that famous clip of Fred Astaire like dancing on the walls mm-hmm. and dancing on the ceiling they had it but they superimposed a vacuum into his hand yeah which is uh, I don't know I'm not, like not wild about that Gene Kelly like like break dancing uh on the singing of the rain set and they like superimpose his face on somebody else's body yeah I think on some of these they have to get the heir's permission mm-hmm. to do yeah. it um I mean I don't really like it. No, I don't like it either because it's crass commercialism. (laughs) Like, it's just they want to make money. Like, if you want to remix the film in some other way and do something interesting with it, it doesn't really bother me. But the idea of, like, using it in ads 
because it's just branding. They're just selling you something you know and go like, hey, you like Wizard of Oz and you'll like this. Yeah. And it's like, well, I mean, who makes the money in that yeah, scenario? Stop, stop spoiling the thing I like. <laughs> stop, stop weaponizing the thing I like to sell me a mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can't afford mortgages, so no. it's not really for us. No. <laughs> so uh, thank you for the letter. This next one's from Daniel Wasserman. He goes... Hi, Justin and Will. Thank you very much for the podcast. Two directors that I would love to hear you discuss are Lizzie Borden, uh, the director of Born in Flames and Working Girls, and Slava Zuckerman, Liquid Sky. Daniel. Well, thanks for the letter, Daniel. And uh, Lizzie Borden is one that we've had our, on our list for a long time. Yeah, yeah. We've seen, uh, we went to see Born in Flames together. And I think there's some, int- there's stuff that we can do. I mean, Working Girls, but also I'm very interested. I haven't seen it, but I'm interested in Love Crimes, mm-hmm. which was this notorious flop that she made, an erotic thriller, but like from a woman's point of view with Sean Young in the early 90s, which again, notorious like Razzie winning flop. Yeah, and, but, but it got like re-edited and I believe she was able to like reinsert her footage. So it's probably available somewhere. I in, mean, for all the bad reviews, I don't believe it could possibly be without merit. And Lizzie Borden is a fascinating figure because she did do something as iconic as Born in Flames and she only had those two other films and that was like it. I am interested in her as a topic. Yeah, yeah. and like, I don't know what she went to do after do you no i mean she's she's had movies that Mm -hmm. she's tried to develop um but they haven't happened there wasn't an interview with her in i think the last issue of cinemascope Mm -hmm. that i really ought to read yeah because born in flames did get Mm re-released and she did kind of go on the circuit with it appearing where uh, she could at the screening that we went to that was put on by sarah ty black she participated in a skype q a afterwards Mm -hmm. and was very open with answers and um it was very interesting stuff and i'm sure it'll probably get like some big deluxe criterion release or something like that so yeah watch out for that in uh, the uh, eventual future as for liquid sky we actually have something planned on that we will probably do a premium episode on that movie very soon yep i hope you're a patreon subscriber Mm -hmm. uh letter writer i didn't check but let me just say you probably want to become one (laughs) before next week yeah so our last letter is from Mitchell Greenberg, and he goes, longtime listener, first time caller, big fan of the show. You're both so erudite and enthusiastic about cinema. I can't wait to listen to your show each week without fail. Erudite. I like that. <laughs> I'm emailing in hopes of rectifying a wrong committed by both of you during your long take episode. I was personally offended by your mission of the climactic chase sequence in Operation Avalanche, a film by Toronto's own Matt Johnson. I believe I am not alone in this feeling, and while I failed to contact David Davidson, who was too busy recovering from Khan, I reasonably believe that he would share my sentiments. David Davidson, uh, the famous at TO film review on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, we we didn't mention Operation Avalanche because there's a lot of movies that have one long takes in them. But that's a good long take. It is a very good one. I that, liked Operation Avalanche. That's like an action scene kind of take. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, check it out because yeah. it's a really fun movie. And the letter continues in order to redress this issue. Oh, wait, I also forgot a long take in a personal favorite of mine, Universal Soldier Regeneration. Okay. So yeah. check that one out. And uh, Close Range, directed by Isaac Florentine. Mm-hmm. In order to redress this issue, I believe the production of an episode on contemporary Toronto filmmakers would be an appropriate remedy. I would absolutely love an episode about Toronto cinema, but not dedicated to the excellent but overly visible filmmakers like Adam Agoyan, Deepa Mehta, and David Cronenberg. Rather, I'd love to listen to an episode dedicated to the Matt Johnsons, the Justin the Clues, mm, I like that, and the Pavin <laughs> Moody's of this great the city. The Frank D'Angelo's. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we've talked about doing like a Toronto thing, but I think it would be a little bit weird yeah. <laughs> for us to talk about that kind of stuff. I mean, 
if Will wants to do a whole episode dedicated to me, yeah, I'm cool with that. Uh, maybe after I pass away in like a hundred years. We we did. We did a commentary track on one of your movies. That's right. We did on the Monster with a Movie Camera film, which you can... Uh, purchase at canmakeproductions.com that is the justin DeClue episode of the importance of the family, <laughs> that's basically. right yeah because yeah, you basically like interviewed me about like why i make movies why i do all this stuff yeah. so if you want that episode check out that commentary track and as far as the other people yeah a little too close to that i think yeah i think it would be a little bit too weird additionally i'd love an episode dedicated to rainer Werner fassbender's late period work namely the oh man i'm gonna have to try to say this Bunder Bundes Republic Deutschland trilogy and Berlin Alexanderplatz and an episode dedicated okay. to Wong Kar Wai would be amazing too. Okay, first of all, there is a Wong Kar Wai episode. There I, is. I'm proud to say. Ooh, uh, I'm not proud of that episode, but take it a listen. That's a fun one. Berlin Alexanderplatz is really long. <sighs> 12 hours. I'm sorry. I would like to talk about Fassbender at some point. You know, I've probably seen, I don't know, six or seven Fassbender movies over the years, mm. but he had such a huge output. I don't feel like I have a great handle on his work right yeah. now. You know, the problem with the Fassbender episode, and I know we're going to get it to eventually, but you're going to hear a lot of, oh, I wish I could watch more of his movies when we do it. Because like, we've talked about this before, but like, we have to challenge ourselves sometimes where like Will or me will pitch something to the other person where we go, Ugh, I mean, I guess. I do like Fassbender. <laughs> I do like uh, Fassbender as well. Yeah, yeah. But it's that position of like, we have to talk about him from a position of not even like close to being an expert. Well, yeah, like, because he has fans who are... Like, they know everything. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we've done a lot of episodes of people that listen and have come up to us and been like, you missed this and this and this. Yeah, yeah. And we're like, listen, we try. We release an episode every week. I think you'll agree that the Godfrey Ho episode was very <laughs> authoritative. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you very uh, much for the letter, Mitch Greenberg. Well, good news. Next week, we're going to be doing a German director. We're going to be doing Werner Herzog. Specifically... The bad Werner Herzog. Listen, we all know Herzog. Fitzcarraldo. It's good. This is Cinema 101 stuff. Yeah. But what about uh, Scream of Stone? Would you say that like (laughs) Herzog is like hipster Cinema 101? Because I feel like, and I kind of want to talk about that as well, that they're connected together. Yeah, like the Vice Guide to Film sort of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And like what that means. So Scream of Stone, like you mentioned. Yeah, I want to do Scream of Stone. Um, I guess Invincible. Yes, which I, 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 the one who brought to the table, which you saw theatrically. I did. <laughs> I think uh, Salt and Fire. Which I haven't seen, but will describe as the <laughs> ultimate example of bad Werner Herzog. Yeah. Like a parody of him almost. I'm kind of tempted. I mean, we've already got three movies here, but I would be tempted to talk. I, I probably don't need to see it again, but something like Lo and Behold. Because mm-hmm. that's one. Well, I don't know. I'll bring it up on the next episode. Yeah, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about his good films in passing as well, but we don't really have anything to add to the numerous books written about him. I think we're Herzog fans, it's mm-hmm. fair to say. Yeah. So check that out next week. And again, you can email us at Podcast at gmail.com. Make sure to become a Patreon subscriber, because this week we talked about Monster Kids. And if you're like, wait, I don't even know what that is. Well, you're gonna have to listen to it, because it's very interesting, I would say. Let's just say that we're the last Monster Kids. That's right. And it's really an episode about, like, fandom 
And what happens when fandom, like, eventually dies, mm-hmm. literally, and what will continue on from that point? So that's $5 a month. Um, you can go to patreon.com, The Important Cinema Club, to check out our page. And you'll get four exclusive episodes every week. And we're still pushing the summer for 150 Patreon subscribers. Once we hit that, me and Will will do a brand new commentary track to all Patreon members. I mean, don't you want to be part of the important cinema club? <laughs> yes. Like, because you're not part of it if you're not a Patreon subscriber. <laughs> I mean, like, you're coming to the meetings and stuff like that as a friend, but you're not really part of the club. Yeah. And as per usual, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm DeClue, J-D-C-L-O-U-X, and the letter J. I'm uh, Will Sloan, E-S-Q. And my letterbox is Justin DeClue. Again, that's my name. Oh, I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Last week, we talked about Ishtar. On Friday, I went to see another Elaine May movie at the Lightbox, The Heartbreak Kid. Love it. So good. And we watched it on a print that apparently is one of two prints that are known to exist. That's crazy, because it would have been like a widely distributed film at its time. Well, one of the prints is inaccessible. The other print belongs to the Swedish Film Academy, and it has burned in Swedish subtitles. Oh, man. The Anthology Film Archives in New York plays it every year Mm -hmm. as part of their Valentine's program. Oh, really? You know, aside from the Swedish subtitles, it's a beautiful print. I mean, it's a bit scratchy, but the color is great. And it really goes to show I didn't realize how nicely shot the movie is like the colors it has this like beautiful autumnal look to it yeah because it perfectly captures that like transitioning of life that charles groden is going through (laughs) from this vacation honeymoon to this cold kind of waspy (laughs) year that he finds himself in and it's a movie that really benefits from being seen with an audience because Mm, it's funny it's so funny and the humor is so dry and so understated at times like Groden's face in the movie, he has a million just perfectly modulated little facial expressions that Mm -hmm. when you see them blown up on a (laughs) four-foot screen with an audience, so good. What else is playing at the Elaine May retrospective? Are they doing the films she, like, wrote as well? Yeah, so The Birdcage played, Mm -hmm. I think, and uh, Primary Colors and some of the other ones. Yeah. Because she only directed four films. Yeah, that's what I mean. So when you say retrospective, it's like a weekend of films, pretty much. Sadly, Crisis in Six Scenes has not (laughs) been programmed. (laughs) That's right, her last acting role. Yeah. Uh, I remember how excited you were when you saw that on IMDb. You're like, Elaine May in a Woody Allen film? She and Miley Cyrus? Ah, the chemistry they'll have together. I think Elaine May is uh, quite fine in Crisis in Six Scenes, actually. Gonna be honest, haven't watched it. For obvious reasons, why would I? Crisis in Six Scenes has (laughs) half the plot of a normal Woody Allen movie and is twice the length. (laughs) Way more than twice the length. Yeah, it's It's like 140 minutes or something in total. Yeah, brutal. Uh, We watched another film during the weekend, which was at the Laser Blast Film Society, the uh, programming series that I run at the Royal Cinema. We got to show The Instructor, a film that I had heard about and I had assumed was something that was already going around and people knew it was a cult film. But after I programmed it, realized... Nope, not true. I mean, some of the die in the wool people have seen it and have touted how amazing it is, but like it hasn't really played anywhere else and it doesn't have the following that I believe it should have. Where was this movie made? It was made in Akron, Ohio, and it was made by one dude who runs a karate studio and he just wanted to make a motion picture with family and friends, I assume, because... Everybody in the film acted in this one thing and never acted again. It's very amateurish. Mm -hmm. It very much feels like a movie that a bunch of friends got together and made. Like, it has a bit of a 
uh, a charming Matt Farley quality at times yes. where like there, there's that one scene where it's like a fight scene next to a pond and there's like a patio with a restaurant behind it where people are are uh, y- you know just eating mm-hmm. while this fight scene's going on and I thought this is like a not self-aware Matt Farley film yeah but I think that like the instructor what it does perfectly other than that is that it's so entertaining throughout oh yeah while the people don't know exactly how movies are supposed to work like storytelling yeah. or pacing or anything like that they do want to entertain you okay the other amazing thing about this movie is they sold it to shapiro glickenhouse Mm -hmm. Uh, james glickenhouse was the director of such films as the protector with jackie chan and the exterminator and they you know ran a video business and they said okay this is fine but you don't have a climax here's a bit of money to shoot a climax go do it and there's this endless hard-boiled like climax (laughs) they took this money and they they blew it up as big as they could. It's this long, long car chase that has a couple of like vehicular stunts in it. Mm-hmm. But like the car chase isn't quite as fast as it should be, but yes. it's really long. And then eventually it becomes a motorcycle chase. And then they start fighting on a waterfall. <laughs> yes, down a waterfall as well. And it was at this point that I was like gasping with laughter. <laughs> I mean, this is a film that like these people don't know how to sell their technique on screen as fighters but man they're going for it oh man at one point someone picks up a chainsaw and oh, starts yes. like waving it at the guy and you realize when it hits a tree that the chainsaw is actually working yes. and they're just like i will just do this and it'll be fine and like it's also a movie that has all those perfect regional film touches that you want which is like the star looks like a miniature burt reynolds for some reason burt reynolds means like louis guzman yeah and lines come from a place that you're like what like, they must have been improvising this. Like, at one point, a fat, balding ninja attacks a bunch of kids. And when one of the kids kicks him in the nuts, he goes, Oh, I'm going to get you, you, you little sluts. Yes. Like, <laughs> what is going oh, on? So good. And, like, the fact that it, like, doesn't have a cult is crazy. I mean... I have my finger on the pulse, and it may be appearing on uh, Red Letter Media in a few weeks. Oh, okay. So it's going to blow up then, and hopefully along with another little film by a man named Matt Farley. What, what would you think would happen if Matt Farley's movies, like, they did a Red Letter Media episode on them? First of all, I think Matt Farley's and Charles Roxburgh are good filmmakers, yes. so I... I, I hope they treat them fairly. Yes. <laughs> uh, but but if they did, you know, if Matt Farley blows up, then that would be great. Yeah, because like those like Red Letter Media reviews get millions and millions of hits. Yeah. And Matt Farley's movies are on YouTube. So like someone could see that review and just go and watch them instantly. I hope it happens. Oh, man, I hope it happens so much as well. And, you know, I was a little bit tentative. And I I remember in the Matt Farley episode, we did when I interviewed him at the end of the episode, I said, you wouldn't want this, would you? And he went, yes, please. As long as people watch my movie, that's all that matters. (laughs)